1: This is Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. Today's From the Silo comes from a July 2022 episode of Foreign Office with Michael Weiss. Michael is joined by the DSR Spy Show's Mark Palmaropoulos to talk about a GRU illegal attempting to infiltrate the ICC, and whether former National Security Advisor John Bolton really could plan a coup. We hope you Enjoy.
0: Hi and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as uh, News Director at New Lines Magazine. Uh, I'm joined today by my friend Mark Palomaropoulos. He's a former officer of the Clandestine Intelligence Agency and a now a, a sort of omnipresent pundit commentator. You've seen him on Morning Joe. No. He writes for the Washington Examiner on national security issues. And uh, I've just found him to be a font of insight and useful information. And we have I think it's, it's okay to say we have a kind of weekly or bi-weekly bitch session on Signal about the state of the world, particularly the war in Ukraine, which is the one of the two reasons I wanted to bring Mark back. He's, he's been on the show before to promote his book and to talk about his own uh, travails, possibly at the hands of Russian intelligence. He was one of the uh, most visible victims of Havana syndrome, which we've discussed amply on this series. Uh, Mark, it's great to see you again, man. And thanks for joining.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, so so I think the, the most important thing for the audience is to understand that we do have these uh, these weekly uh, yeah, big sessions And really because, you know, I think there is, especially for someone like myself, who is kind of a practitioner, yeah. Um, in the intelligence game, you know, an operator, uh, you know, the doom and gloom over Ukraine is, is driving me absolutely crazy. And, and let's let's dive into it right now, because I think I don't understand why the conventional wisdom is that the status quo is going to remain the same. Like, let's do something about it. I, you know, in the in the agency, I was in the CIA for 26 years. There are those who talk about stuff. There's those who do things. Let's change the conditions on the grounds. So why the NSC and others and a lot of, you know, pundits think that it's that the, the doom and gloom is just is set in stone is absolutely beyond me.
0: Well, let you know. Let, let's let's start with this. Um, I was just in Kiev, uh, what three or four weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago, and my appraisal. I talked to senior foreign Ministry of Foreign Affairs officials. Uh, I talked to very high up in Ministry of Defense. My impression was things are not nearly as bad as. Those of us reading The New York Times, The Washington Post might have been led to believe, Uh, yes, there have been tactical losses in Donbass, the fall of Sverdodonetsk and now Lysuchansk. But this is something like 0.3% of Ukraine's territory, which it's taken the Russians many, many weeks, eight or nine weeks to, to accomplish. Strategically, the Ukrainians think they can still, quote unquote, win the war. Now, we can define that as they define that as pushing the Russians back to February 24th borders or just far enough, close enough to those borders that it it forces Putin into a weakened position for negotiating some kind of long term settlement. But one of the interesting things I heard, uh, and this came from a very high ranking defense official. Some of the worst case casualties, fatality figures that have been trafficked in the press and they were coming directly from Ukraine's political establishment, civilian political establishment, including President Zelensky, 100 to 200 soldiers killed per day on the Ukrainian side. These are exaggerations, but really these are the worst days on the battlefield. They are by no means the the norm or the median. And, And the logic with this was there is a prevailing assumption, again, among the civilian political leadership that talking about... Stalingrad and, and, and dealing in catastrophism, we're losing the war is the way to speed security assistance. MOD okay. thinks, no, the opposite. If you do that, if you doomcast, if you suggest that we're losing and, and we're bleeding troops and resources, the West is going to just give up and say, "Well, we don't want to back another losing struggle after Afghanistan, Iraq, et cetera, et cetera." So there's this kind of split, which has not been really reported, but is there? And, and to your point, I mean, I was there before the arrival, or at least the the upper uh, the, the the putting into operational effect of the HIMARS, the you know the mobile multiple launch rocket systems, which now we have seen in the last two three weeks have been used to devastating effect. They're taking out command centers, killing dozens of Russian officers, including right. the general reportedly. They're hitting airfields. They're just destroying uh, Russian ammunition depots deep inside occupied territory, going back to like terrain that was taken in 2014. The Ukrainians seem now they've got the momentum and you know the, the refrain is faster faster more more. Give us more of these systems, send the security assistance quicker. We're adept, right. we can train up on these things faster than you you think based on whatever white papers you've come up with on on sort of the the, the traditional form of of you know training or absorption whatever it's called in the military terms. And yeah, they have the optimism, they have the morale. It's we in the West who seem to think, you know, they're all but toast now, you know, like it's, it's, they have to cut some kind of,
1: right. It's it's a really, it's a very strange phenomenon as well. You know, I I mean, I I really was thinking about it, you know, knowing I was coming on this morning, you know, at times I wonder, and perhaps this is after two decades of of war and America is tired, but are we as scared of actually asserting US power now? Yeah. Because we could do so much more. I think the argument that that nuclear catastrophe is around the corner, that's been completely discredited. I never was a believer that whatsoever, because I remember when I was in government service and and this is, you know, I think one of General Mattis's finest moments when uh, JSOC, when Delta Force killed over 300 you know, Russian mercenaries from the Wagner group in Syria and the Russians did nothing. Yeah. And so, you know, this idea that we're always terrified of a Russian response I think that you know, we should we should put that to bed. but but I wonder if we're just scared of American, you know, using using all elements of American power because it seems to me this is not to, to be fair to the Biden administration. I remember times when I was in a senior officer at CIA involved in counterterrorism during the Obama years. And we had to beg and plead in doing some things that saved American lives. But, uh, this was some kinetic activity, but but yeah. all the administration was reluctant to do it. So we just pushed. So we had we'd have these huge fights with the NSC. So so perhaps we're seeing the same thing. Maybe it's just that's the checks and balances of the U.S. system. But it always seems like you know it's it's a struggle to do the right thing. Yeah. Eventually, the U.S. does. And so you know we were always a couple days late or weeks or months. But you know where we are now, and and, and Michael, you've been an incredible proponent of really helping the Ukrainians. Um, but it was a, it was a long struggle. You know, for I mean, you know, this is, you know, weeks and months of kind of, you know, you know, the, the Twitter wars and, you know, appearances you know, yourself as well on way too early or morning, Joe. And so but ultimately, you know, the U.S. will do the right thing, but it just takes us a long time. And I, I never understand the reluctance. Perhaps it's the American bureaucracy. Again, perhaps it's the fear of U.S. power. But but if you talk to people like me, if, you know, if I'm not retired right now, I'm, I'm there inside Ukraine. Um, there's no doubt in my mind. And we're side by side with Ukrainian partners. Maybe not in the front, maybe in the west. Maybe I'm in Poland. I mean, who the hell knows? But ultimately, we're side by side with Ukrainian partners. And I can't imagine looking at them and you know and saying, "Well, hey, we're just going to give you enough to negotiate."
0: Right. You know, we don't
1: really want you to win when these weapon systems are working. So that's the thing that there's no argument in this uh, in this discussion that we're giving the wrong systems. Systems that we've given are you know um, are ineffective because that's actually the, the reality on the ground is that they're they're very good and so. You know, I just I worry that you know uh, either with because of U.S. you know the political realities or just the Americans get tired um, that we don't you know kind of up the ante. But you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know it's a responsibility of those of us who you know have an opinion on this to kind of keep howling that that you know Ukraine needs more. And uh, and again, it's it's the notion of uh, the inevitability of a stalemate. I just don't believe in that. And and the other part too, just just let's. So you know, as you as you were kind of in your opening saying that things aren't as bad as they seem. Well, let's let, okay, and I agree with you, but let's say they are. So what? Does that mean we're just going to give up? I mean, what what is Winston Churchill doing in World War II? I mean, you know, the lack of resolve and kind of fortitude and strength um, that seems to come out of the NSC at times is extraordinary. Things might be, you know, spiral totally downhill for the Ukrainians. Well, then let's help them more. Right. You know, it's a weird defeatist attitude that I just don't understand you know and and again, I, I am fairly confident my old colleagues at CIA are would be first and foremost the ones kind of pushing for more assistance, same thing from the Pentagon. I don't know where the resistance comes from, certainly from academics, you know you mentioned or. Or, you know, they could trot out Kissinger, who's, you know, in my view, is irrelevant at this moment. Um, His his friendship with Putin over the last several years discredited him, aside from... And and,
0: and possible business entanglements with Putin and the Russian government. I mean, Kissinger Associates, his management company consultancy, doesn't disclose its client list, which seems to be a rather flagrant conflict of interest if he's commenting on Russia, China, you know, all of these countries. uh, Now,
1: now one thing that I was encouraged, I was watching the press conference today in, uh, in Jerusalem, and President Biden's, you know, said flat out, you know, and, and you mentioned um, Ukraine and the need to push back. And so I think the president has this resolve, you know, perhaps some of his advisors may be getting wobbly, but you know, we well, just but, gotta, but we gotta keep going.
0: Just to play devil's advocate on that point, right? So I was of the assumption within the sort of brains trust of the White House, you have Biden and Blinken, very much on side with let's help the Ukrainians, let's go further than we're told we should in terms of responsibility and, and the fear of escalation and all that. And then at the NSC, you've got Jake Sullivan and John Finer, who are the squishier elements on Russia, Sullivan in particular was the big China guy, right? We were going to actually do the pivot to, to the E that Obama had, had said they were going to do. And for him, a nuisance, this is a distraction and it's time. OK, Kiev, you, you proved your point. You still exist. You're a sovereign nation. Now it's time to de-escalate and cut a deal, right? But then you see things like when Lloyd Austin came up and said, our objective is to degrade Russia's military capability such that they cannot wage a kind of offensive like this in the short or midterm perfectly moral and logical and fair comment which got huge amounts of scandalous attention right and apparently now you read Biden sort of had to come to Jesus with him and and dressed him down for saying that Biden I think at uh, the G8 was it got up and said well you know we don't want uh, we just want to make it so that Russia can't win but he didn't say we want to make it so that Ukraine can win and it was Boris Johnson of all people who said no I think that should be the objective so it seems like Biden is I don't know. He's got the devil and the angel on either shoulder and he's kind of torn himself. But but but, you know, putting all that aside, you know, we're talking about these weapons systems. These are things the Ukrainians have been asking for for a long time. These are things that as of February 23rd, the day before the invasion, were would nobody. It was unimaginable that the United States would be providing. Right. You and I were talking right before the war said, you know, what is what is what is the U.S. doing? They're doing essentially what the CIA is really good at doing. They're preparing for an insurgency right they're arming the ukrainians to be kind of guerrilla fighters they're going to have to fight a regular warfare against the russians meanwhile they didn't lose command and control they didn't lose their air defense systems at least not to the point that they gave the russians air superiority or supremacy they still have conventional capability up the wazoo and so now all of a sudden we're recalibrating our assumptions and you'd think we would be saying okay great you know himars let's give them as many as they need nasams these air defense systems that can protect whole population centers and possibly you know, forestall the, 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 the event that just happened today where the Russians just bombed another shopping mall in midday, clear war crime targeting civilians. Let's do all we can. But no, still this hesitancy, still this clinging to the conventional wisdom that, you know, somehow right. Russia is going to come out in an okay position and we should be an accomplice to that. We should help them do that rather than make this hurt. I, mean,
1: it- I, th- I, th- I think it's, you know, there's, there's a huge part of me that I think that's immoral. Yeah. And again, I, I look at it from and, and, you know, you spent a lot of time there, so, you know, a lot of you know, folks on the ground. But but again, from having some contact in the past with Ukrainian service, security services, but also assuming that, that, you know, my my old colleagues are there side by side. How do you look someone in the eye and just yeah. say, hey, we're just going to give you enough to negotiate, um, by the right. way, because, you know, and, and we can get into a whole discussion this. I mean, you know, Vladimir Putin was a war criminal before and he's a war criminal now. You know, Russia was a terrorist state before and and I, I and I, I even more so now. So, I mean, how do you look a Ukrainian colleague in the eye and not give them everything that they need um, to yeah. push back on a country and, and and the Russian military, which has committed absolute atrocity? So to, to me, there's ethics and morality in that. And this is the kind of thing that, uh, you know, that that drives me nuts about Washington sometime because and look, you know, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, there's a lot of kind of armchair quarterbacks who go on cable news networks, Um, some with very impressive pedigrees and may have worked in administrations and, you know, and teach at fancy universities. They don't have a clue what it's like to be on the ground um, side by side in a conflict zone, uh, you know, with allies. And, you know, our credibility is at stake, but again, there's the the moral and ethic uh, part of it. And and look, I think that uh, I'm not discouraged because the United States seems to inevitably do the right thing. I mean, what's What's, you know, who is it? It was a, uh, it wasn't a Churchill, it Churchill or was a British politician? But, yeah. Um, you know, never,
0: until they uh, exhaust all right. other opportunities. And, that, and so ultimately yeah, we'll right.
1: get there, but it's a, it's a struggle. And, and, you know, I'm not going to pat myself on the back at all. I'll pat you on the back. Um, but it, cause, because it's, it's yourself and others who kind of do scream about this in the media. Um, that I think, you know, this does have an effect because we have to really break away from this notion that a stalemate is inevitable. I mean, Ukraine, you, you know, when we say you can't can win, what does that mean? I don't know. Back to February twenty fourth, lines pushing back even further uh, in the east, but but that's up for the Ukrainians first of all to decide. Uh-huh. Um, but number two, it's uh, again, it's it's you know, and th- let me just say one other thing: every military analyst got this wrong the entire time, including myself. I was spouting off thinking that Kiev would fall in thirty six hours because that was the right. conventional wisdom. Well you know the us intelligence community got that entirely wrong so the entire pundit class maybe save you or, or some others but ultimately um, no i mean I, I i you know look i, I
0: went in january right. just to find out why the ukrainians were not as panicked as right, everybody right, else remember, yeah. and i came away you know and again i have so much ptsd from doing syria where you know i'd be told <laughs> xy would happen you know, you you want to sort of evangelize and advocate on behalf of the victim. But, you know, you have to also take the reality of the situation into account. Right. And in the Ukrainian case, I was being told, look, Putin would be insane to do this. He'll choke on Ukraine. He'll lose. We know how to fight the Russians. This is just going to be a complete and utter calamity for him. And I was like, oh, really? But, you know, at least I I took seriously what they were saying. And I tried to weave a kind of, you know, on the one hand, on the other story. So I didn't get it right, I just reported, right? right. I didn't I don't make predictions, certainly not anymore because I think it's, you know, you know that way folly lies. But yeah, you're, to this, this point, I've been talking about this a lot with Elliot Cohen, with uh, Phillips O'Brien, who teaches at uh, University of Edinburgh, is a great military analyst how is it that this, you know, the, the entirety of the military analytic community got it so badly wrong,
1: spectacular, now. Well, I mean, let, let, let's not, but there's no, there's no,
0: but what I'm seeing is there's no cognizance of how wrong we were. It's yeah. basically, and I'm not making this up. Well, the reason things didn't go the way we said they would is because the Russians didn't wage war the way we would have waged war. I mean, in the cold war, this was known as mirror imaging, right? you assume your adversary is going to do things the way you would t- not taking into account and not having the cultural imagination to realize they just live differently and think differently and behave differently. And that has to factor into your calculations and your your, your prediction models, right? Um, there's no humility. There's no kind of, I- I've seen people who've deleted entire Twitter threads where they said, you know, he's <laughs> just toast in three days. And they're still getting quoted in the New York Times talking right. about the future of the war. And look, I, I'm not, I'm not here to like shame and and name and shame here, but I do think that this has to be incorporated into our kind of long-term projections. Like the the Ukrainians think they have the metal. They certainly have the will. I mean, upwards of 90% do not want to stop fighting. They think they're going to defeat the Russians. You know, they have a, you know, they can regenerate manpower in a way that the Russians cannot. A lot of people from the diaspora have come back. A lot of refugees, particularly military males, have come back. They're taking up arms. They want to fight. All they're saying is give us the tools to, to allow us to do this. And by the way, you notice, even the things that, you know, we're legally contractually worried about, if we give them HIMARS, they can shoot HIMARS into Russia. They can't do that. Now, this sounded to me like the most nonsensical cockamamie, like there's some fucking team of lawyers coming up with this. Like, oh, if you give them rockets that go 150 miles in range versus that, the one that, that, that only go 40 miles. The, 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 the that NSC
1: makes do this. They it's do like. This. Okay so if
0: they take a 40 mile range rocket system right. push it to the border with Russia and fire into Russia they're still striking in Russia right but anyway you, to this, to this day they have not used HIMARS to strike in Russia they're using their own homemade rocket systems maybe they're using the Turkish Bayraktar drones but they're sticking to the letter of of that agreement so they're not they're not reckless they're not going to you know bite the hand that feeds them here they they have proof of concept right. that's the thing and and yet still i mean i saw it the other day it got a lot of crap on social media, the FT came out with this story of the EU worries about weapons proliferation and the Ukrainian black market smuggling shit out. And it's like, look, they're fighting for their country and their lives. And we're already looking, you know, 10 years down the line about AKs that have gone missing or whatever. I mean, you know, it's this is the thing. We are our own worst enemy in the West. I mean, I keep emphasizing that we're, we're afraid of victory. We're afraid of doing the right thing. For I, some I, agree,
1: I totally, I agree totally. And, you know, I, and, and I think that, uh, you know, once again, it's you know, there. this is just kind of my my morals and my ethics. You know, you want to do the right thing. The U.S. government should do the right thing, even if it's hard. Mm-hmm. So let's say, you know, so I don't agree the Ukrainians are losing, um, even if they were that all, all that would mean is that we have to redouble our efforts. There's almost the argument that you see played out in the editorial pages um, or in some, you know, in some think tanks that because there will be a stalemate, we should just you know, push for a settlement. That doesn't make any sense. Right. How about we just ensure that there's no stalemate again? And I go back to, you know, what is the, you know, the great war, the wars of our time? I mean, obviously, everyone kind of harkens back to World War II. You know, God forbid, what would have happened if Twitter existed during World War Two, you know, because you know, after, after, after Dunkirk, that would be it. It would be well, like, that, yeah. I mean, you know, really? categorical so, surrender. Right. Nazis. So just, you know, it's, yeah. it's it's almost the sense of and I think so, oftentimes it, and I, I don't know if it's American policymakers, but a lot of people, you know, in, in some academic and think tank circles, you know, I think they forget what has happened to Ukraine, Ukraine um, every day wakes up and thinks it's September 12th. You know, so you remember September 12th for us, 2001. America went to war, and there was incredible resolve. That's what the Ukrainians are right. thinking every day. And there certainly right. wasn't any kind of talk in the United States of, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this on September 12th. There was an incredible, uh, you know, push. Whether it's, you know, obviously protect from future attacks or vengeance, you know, whatever. But I think we really we kind of mischaracterized the gravity of the situation for the Ukrainians. Um, and and again, those who push and 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 I promise you, they have never been there and have never been in a conflict zone. But those who push um, uh, Ukraine to negotiate, uh, there's an immorality there that drives me crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, I just I, two days ago I, I got back from Estonia. I was there for ten days. I I interviewed the prime minister, uh, who's been a very stalwart right. defender of Ukraine, very dynamic uh, political figure who's was jockeying internally with the collapse of a coalition government in the midst of doing all of this. And, you know, one of the things that impresses me about Estonia, and I've traveled to all the Baltic states, but Estonia, I have more of an affinity to, uh, I know a lot of the former and current leadership there and and so on. It's a small country. It has perhaps more social cohesion and cultural homogeneity than we do here. Certainly that you don't have, you know, talks of impending civil war in Estonia, even though 25% of the population are ethnic Russian. And there's historically been this concern about, you know, which way do they lean? Is this a potential fifth column, et cetera? But, you know, things just work and they, there is a, a widespread acceptance of the existential threat posed by Russia because they're next door neighbors. And as such, their capacity for intelligence gathering, for analysis, for doing these kind of military models, I find to be, frankly speaking, far superior to our own, right? Um, I mean, and the Anglo-American intel community did one superbly wonderful thing, which is said, Russia is going to war. So, I mean, we know it, the it's going to happen. So, yes. you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got the war plans. We know exactly how it's going to. But we fucked up by saying this is how the war is going to go. Right, seventy-two hours, Kiev falls, Zelensky's assassinated. Blah blah blah. And look, I mean, to our credit, the U.S. intel community did lots of things, many of which will, will not be known for years in terms of sharing intel and possibly other clandestine op- operations inside Ukrainian territory and all that. But you know, I've been checking with the Estonians who, to this day, are cautiously optimistic, and perhaps that's even too conservative. They think the the line I heard was the Russians have no second gear for this war. They think they have no capability of pushing forward. Um, you know, there's no maneuver to their you know military behavior. It's all just complete artillery bombardment. And now the Ukrainians are taking out ammunition stocks and interrupting supply lines to make it difficult for them to kind of level whole cities like they've done in Sviatodanyets and Lysychansk. And also they see that you know in, by the end of the summer. There will be a counteroffensive by the Ukrainians in the South, which is strategically more important for Ukraine in terms of its economy, maritime commerce, et cetera. Already you're seeing now Ukraine is able to take grain out of the country by ship because they liberated Snake Island from the Russians several weeks ago. The big fish for them is Kherson, north of Crimea, first population center to be taken by the Russians in late February, early March. Um, The Estonians seem to think, I mean, I put it to Carl, who's this kind of shamanistic military intel analyst from Estonia, whose name I can't disclose. But anyway, I met him in Tallinn. And I said, February 24th borders, that seems kind of unrealistic. And he looked at me like I had three heads. He's like, why unrealistic? He's like, haven't you been paying attention to what the Ukrainians are doing? Haven't you been paying attention to to how they're using these weapon systems? I mean, they become a NATO standardized military without the benefit of joining NATO, right? Um, give them a chance. I mean, he, he, there's a there's a doggedness here. and And honestly, I I put a lot of stock in that assessment because, as far as the TikTok of this war, the Estonians have been far more correct than you know anybody I see in my neck of the woods on Twitter or in think tankistan and you know writing op eds for the New York Times. I mean, what's your
1: professional? Well, I, I think you're you're 100% right. I mean, you know, the Estonians have you know there's there's a lot of love in the U.S. intelligence community for the Estonians, um, not only because I think we have a lot of respect that they're a frontline state, but more mm-hmm. importantly because they're good and they put out. An annual unclassified assessment that you can find on Twitter, uh, but yeah. that is that is read religiously by the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, they're you know they're they're kind of window into Russia and and really just kind of the, their kind of general you know area of operations. But you know, they are seen as competent, credible, and uh, you know their kind of their Russian analysis has always been spot on. And so you know I would urge your you know the listeners and viewers today. I mean you, you can jump online and get it. It's an annual assessment, yeah. and it is it is absolutely um, something that the U.S. intelligence community looks forward to, but it's there. You know, there's there's tremendous respect, uh, and then and then. you also have to take a look, and I, I, don't, I don't know if you have the figures. I don't have them right at hand. Is you know the the amount? You know, what what are the contributions to the Ukraine war effort? I think Estonia has been they have pretty, even- pretty damn good
0: they've given close to 40% that's of their military right. budget yeah. yep. Pretty they've remarkable. spent uh, i think 8.8% of their gdp on yeah. on all forms of assistance security and otherwise i mean and this is a country of 1.3 million people right. right smaller than new york city But there is a unity of purpose that, look, you know, and, you know, here's the important thing. Their chief of staff made a very interesting observation early days, which is he was asked by a member of the press, why are we donating all this stuff to Ukraine? I mean, don't we need it in case we get invaded by the Russians? And he said, listen, this is not charity. Right. This is an investment. Every Russian tank that a Stinger missile that we've sent the Ukrainians destroys in Ukraine is one less Russian tank that can invade
1: Tallinn, right? right. That's how they see it. So even if you want to... Right. Yeah. And so one of the things, you know, so one of the things that's really interesting, and, and I think the Biden administration has done it about as good a job as possible, is managing the, the conflicts within NATO, you know, within Europe over this, the frontline states versus kind of the old guard. You know, you know, because right. if anyone's going wobbly, it's and you see it in the press right now, um, you know, public sentiment in Germany uh, is, is shifting again because they're obviously nervous about upcoming winter and, and gas prices and inflation. And so, you know, is it's Germany, France, you know, Boris Johnson, you know, whether you like him or not, actually was really good on Ukraine. Yeah, they uh, love them in Ukraine. So, so I think that Ukraine I, is a, I, Ukraine's
0: the only country where Elon Musk and Boris Johnson have a future. That's right. And neither politics yeah, that's
1: right. That's or, right. or right. industry. They're, they're the two beloved figures. But it's, it's it's you know I I tend to always you know I, I don't I'm not a huge fan of you know Macron's you know uh, you know uh, diplomatic efforts with Putin um, the, the French kind of German view on this versus versus the frontline states and and then, but but it, it's also schizophrenic because then the French military is provided um significant amounts of equipment right. as well. So it, it's kind of all over the place. But going back to your thing, I think if you want to learn about Russia, if you want to understand Russia, and if you want a a view of uh, of, of where Russia is going, that, you know, a five meter target from those that live there, the Estonians versus all of us back here in, in DC 6,000 miles away, or whatever it is, talk to the Estonians. I think your, your trip was spot yeah. on. And, and again, that that Intel report, I'm going to after this, I'm going to come back and pull it up and read it again, because it's always of great interest. Uh, to the, to the yeah, U.S. So they island, have, they yeah. do
0: two. They do the foreign intelligence service, and then right. Kapo, which is their FBI, puts out one about all the Russian spies they caught that year, right. and right. also the agents of influence that are operating in their own midst. Yeah. And I mean, I guess in an American context, this would be considered a little too controversial because the Estonians have no problems naming names. Right? <laughs> They'll say, "Here's this fake NGO. The Russians have stood up, and this is the kind of stuff they're talking about." You know, that Estonia is a Nazi state, and. Right. There's no language rights, et cetera, et cetera. And that goes right into their, their annual counterintelligence report that's publicly available, as you say. Well, right. listen, I, think, I want to shift gears a okay. little bit because I know we've been chatting also about this case of the GRU illegal. Yes. Who was caught by the Dutch, our friends, the Dutch, and he was applying for and possibly ready to receive an internship at the International Criminal Court, but he had also attended universities and, um, I guess, think tanks. He was kind of in that world in Washington. I know he was at um, Johns Hopkins. Uh, Eugene Frankel, the great scholar of genocide, had him in his class. So this was a guy, I mean, let me, his name, he he pretended to be using the name Victor Muller Ferreira, if I'm pronouncing the surname correctly, his real name. (laughs) Yeah, Sergei uh, Cherkasov, and he was, uh, yeah, he was a like a twenty-something GRU illegal, and we haven't heard much about illegals. Well, since the uh, Operation Ghost Stories in two thousand and ten, on uh, a Chapman fame, you know, and that was a, an SVR team. But you know, one of the things that that I think you pointed out, uh, as well as others, is that this suggests that the GRU has been penetrated, if not by the Dutch, then by a partner service in the West. Because they had his name, his identity, they had everything. Uh, rather than this was lousy opsec or tradecraft. There's some indications. You know, he didn't speak Brazilian fluently. He had a weird accent. You know, he might have been. Every, everybody Monday, Monday morning. morning
1: quarterbacks that afterwards. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Oh, but I want you.
0: To, I want to. You know. Just like when you say this, and when John Cipher says this, and when other people have the professional experience say it, you know my ears perk up. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, no, you know, I mean, they're, they're you know so, so you know,
1: Cipher and I talked about this a great deal. John Cipher is a, a former colleague at the agency of mine, uh, actually a former instructor of mine um, down the farm. So you know, whatever I I ended up in my career, it's all his fault. But you know, and and so so so, so including wearing a Red Sox T-shirt right, for a down. show that's
0: based in New York.
1: <laughs> so so a couple <laughs> things on this. So in, and and Michael, you and I have talked about this previously. So. So, so just as a I, and I'll start with a little bit of humor this has this you know for a while kind of caused an absolute uproar in DC and everyone was kind of horrified um, that this that this Russian illegal um, managed to go to grad school here and so and, and of course all of us in the, the former Intel folks are kind of chuckling about this too and and professors are saying oh my god what if I mean come on that's not that big a deal right. but on a, on a professional level two things one is when we catch spies, and we meaning, let's just say Western intelligence, ordinarily, it's not from great sleuth work. There's, it's not that we right. have 45 analysts you know, um, you know, who, who are pouring over financial records. Usually, it's because there's a penetration we have of somewhere, we meaning, again, allied services. And, and that penetration tells us exactly who is an espionage officer, an intelligence officer. And so, right. um, so, so my, my inclination would be that it would be from that, that it wasn't some kind of great counterintelligence work. Now, great current intelligence work could be recruiting somebody to tell us that, but that's usually how people are caught. Um, and so, so right. you know, whether it's the Dutch or an allied service, who knows? You know, there's so many questions on this, uh, you know, because, you know, it, you know, did the Dutch know in advance where they tipped off the last second? And what is the biggest takeaway for me is is two things. One is that the, the you know, Russians are still doing this, not a shock, but it's, you know, it's good to see that out in the open. I think the operation was, while sloppy, it was successful in the sense of, you know, he, he lived openly here in, in D.C. and he almost got an internship at the International Criminal Court. So, so the, you know, the, as, as much as we can kind of after the fact say, well, they were sloppy, it still probably was going to be successful, if not um, for, for probably a tip. But the final piece is, and, and I think that this is where we really should focus this, is, uh, um, is what the, the Russians had in mind. You know, why is the International Mm. Criminal Court of interest to them? Because, you know, taking a, you know, when you when you plan illegal operations like this, I mean, they've invested a a huge amount of time in building this individual's cover. And so ultimately, his operational task was to go to the ICC. So, you know, this is not this is not anything marginal. Why is this important to the Russians? Well, it's important to them because they're worried about what about future war crimes. Right. And and, you know, and, and so regardless of what you hear um, Lavrov or others kind of, you know, poo-poo all the things that are being done. They are concerned about this because at some point this war will end. And then the West, frankly, is going to figure out what the hell do we do about, you know, in essence, a, a, you know, a terrorist state and leaders that have committed um, atrocities. And so yeah. the Russians were trying to penetrate the ICC. Well, that's kind of interesting. And even though this guy was going to, what do we call him, Sergei or Victor, was going to get an internship, you know, when, when you run an operation like this, it can, it can be multifaceted. This individual might not go try to recruit anybody in the ICC, but if he's an internship and he has access to computer systems, all he's got to do is put a thumb drive in. I mean, you know, so, so, you know, people think about the espionage game sometimes and they think, well, you know, we have to have a high level agent somewhere. Well, actually you don't. A technical, It's a, a human enabled technical operation can be just as, or more valuable. And, and I would imagine that's what the yeah. Russians were probably thinking about, you know. And he pops a thumb drive in there, and all of a sudden they have access to, to internal ICC databases. And you know, I don't know. I would have you'd have to go talk to the Dutch, you know. You know, what are the security protocols for an intern? Well, I mean, you know, uh, you know, the, the frankly the advances uh, in technology and in cyber, you know, I'd suggest that if if you know, even if uh, there was some limits to this individual's access as an intern, you know, Russian technology might have been been able to, you know, what we call swim upstream um, and get into the classified uh, or the more sensitive networks of the ICC. So, I mean, again, I I think that that it's it's a fascinating story. It caused a whole bunch of, you know, uh, uh, kind of craziness here in Washington. We all smiled at this. And then, but ultimately it's the Russians really being interested in the ICC means what? It means we have to keep going. You know, the U.S. intelligence community several months ago, uh, and it it wasn't really reported all that much, was tasked by the administration to collect on on war crimes in Ukraine, Um, just like we did back in the Balkan wars when there was Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the Pifwick hunt. This is the persons, you know, uh, indicted for war crimes and where we held, um, uh, you know, uh, ultimately via tribunals held uh, those responsible for some, you know, terrible uh, criminal activities in, in, in the 90s. Um, well, the U.S. intelligence community is helping in this. Well, that means that we have to keep going on that, and of course, open source um, entities are doing this as well. BallenCat has been very active, uh, and others, mm-hmm. because at, at some point, this data that we, you know, that we uh, collect on what the Russians have done, which is, you know, a lot of open source, but again, the, the USIC is going after it too, will be used for something. And so, if people say, "Oh my God, is is you know, Putin will never be held accountable?" Well, okay, maybe, or maybe not. But why would you not want to collect all that data? And it shows, again, the Russian attempt to penetrate the ICC is a absolute, um, to me, uh, sign that they are concerned. And it's again, it's, 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 it's even more of, a, of an indication we have to keep going and, and, and keep collecting this, uh, this information because, you know, at some point the war is going to be over and we have to hold, hold, uh, hold those, uh, uh, those officials accountable, whether it's Russian military, political entities, the intelligence services. Um, they have a tremendous amount of blood on their hands, as you know, from, yeah. from all your visits there, for sure. Well, is
0: it, and, but this this idea that that the GRU, which until really the 2016 presidential election, I mean, I'm writing a book on this, so I've kind of gone back into the, the annals of history, I mean, all the way to 1918 when it was founded. But nobody had really in the West... Outside of you know the professional circles that that it's their job to to know what these are. the GRU had been this kind of murky you know um, impenetrable agency of of Russian intelligence it, it operated uninterruptedly then all of a sudden it it exploded onto the scene they're doing assassinations with Novichok they're hacking I mean you mentioned you know pe- penetrating a, a major international institution in 2018 they sent cyber operators to the Hague to try and penetrate the servers of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons from the parking lot next door. They had their whole like apparatus in the trunk, and the AIVD closed in and, and nabbed them. And, and that was because, possibly, OPCW was investigating this fall assassination attempt. They were also looking into, I think at that time, Syrian uh, chemical weapons use, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So the, the Russians, particularly the GRU, will take very risky, bold endeavors to obtain information by organizations that, could possibly stand up a case against Russia, right? So information operations, the GRU is going to commit a lot of assets and, and resources to it. But the idea that they have been penetrated fascinates me because not just you know this assumption that, oh, okay, you know, we knew too much about this guy and that's it, we had a mole on the inside and that's how he was burned. But you'll recall, Remember the whole uh, Taliban bounty story, which That's to right. this day, you know, you're still going to find your armchair pundits and, and, you know, people who really don't understand how intelligence works saying this has been debunked just because the DIA, or the Pentagon hasn't found like body bags of American or British soldiers that said made by the GRU. Suddenly there's no there there. But, you know, the reporting that was done and it was it was a, a succession of articles by Charlie Savage in The New York Times Very granular detail, very clear. This wasn't just about interrogating Taliban commanders, right? Because, I mean, the reliability of what they're going to say is, you know, it's not all that stellar. There was intercepts, there were financial transactions, and it was Unit 29155. This kind of special tasks unit of the gru that does sabotage and assassination so that that itself is dispositive why would these guys be paying money to the taliban it's not to redecorate caves in waziristan right i mean they have a specific goal i put it to the former head of ukraine's military intelligence service which is doing quite a lot <laughs> right now is it possible that you know the west the u.s the Brits have sources inside, not just the GRU itself, but inside this unit, feeding them things about their malign activities. And he said, it's very likely. Now, this is kind of interesting, because if you look at the way the war has gone on the Russian side, right, there is a supposition that this isn't just about incompetence, corruption, Russian stupidity. There's active sabotage happening within the military industrial complex and the security establishment. Uh, I've seen some credible evidence, Christo Grozeva of Bellingcat has been reporting that there have been leaks coming from within the FSB, for instance, you know, tipping off Zelensky, that Wagner group, the mercenary corps was coming to assassinate him. I have my own sort of lines on this about things that have emerged from the Russian special services, at least at the beginning of the war, where people were very, very disdainful of what Putin was doing, either because they have family members in Ukraine, they themselves are Ukrainian, or... They just understood this was going to be a geostrategic calamity for Russia. I mean, do you think that given what you're observing and, you know, we can, you know, little microscopic stories, but the macro level, do you think that this is a leaky ship, that the GRU has a real problem with uh, with HR, let's say?
1: Well, so so I think there's a, a, you know, you have to kind of define what's a leaky ship. and so. Uh, you know, and then let me just kind of I have to just my, you know, my preface on this is I retired in, in you know, in, you know, what, uh, almost you know three years ago yeah. now. So I have no idea what our current collection posture is, uh, which is good. You know, the farther I get away from retirement, the easier I am to talk right. about things like this. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, we're not talking about U.S. intelligence. We're actually talking about, you know, or even NATO. It's really Western intelligence. So so let's take, you know, all the countries of NATO or anyone who's interested in, in penetrating Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not just the Five Eyes, but, you know, the the countries of NATO and then even more specifically, some of the frontline states right. who are really good. We just talked about the Estonians and, and others. And so throw together their human capability and then throw on top of that SIGINT capability. So when you say the, FS, the FSB or GRU is a, is a leaky ship, you know, clearly we are obtaining tel- intelligence in some fashion. Right. Um, now, it might be human, it might be, it might be signals, signals intelligence. But, you know, Russia is a hard target, but it's not impenetrable. And ultimately, I would really, I I would be gravely disappointed if we didn't have such lines in, um, when I say we collectively, uh, again, but, but it, it, you know, if you know the intelligence game, and you do, it could be a human source, it could be SIGINT, it could be a technical operation on their computer system. So you just, you just don't know. But ultimately, uh, and clearly, you know, what's what, what the, the best kind of, Proof of this is somehow, and I don't know how. I've heard from different journalists. I mean, we obtained the war plan, right. which is a, which was a huge, you know, intelligence coup. So again, how do how we did that? Whether it's SIGINT, human, I, I don't know, and it, it doesn't really matter. But if you know, if you want, you know, if you want to sign that Russia is not twenty feet tall, the fact is that we knew, and we knew months apparently months in advance about this. You know, so so I, I think that so so take what I said there. Now number two, here's where it gets a lot more fun. Uh, in my old world. Pushing forth the notion that we do have penetrations of Russian intelligence it drives Vladimir Putin. Right. And so that to me is from the I.O., from the information operations kind of stage is exactly where we should be going, right. because then he will start counterintelligence uh, investigations and, and, and witch hunts and, and sowing dissension. And, you know, you saw, you know, several months ago, it was uh, Sergei Beseda that, you uh-huh. know, he was who was removed. And now apparently he might be back um, you know, we're all getting it from the same source, which is your old buddy, Soldatov. Right. Um, you know, and, but and we, you know, we read that, you know, very, very eagerly on what's going on inside uh, the FSB or, or the jury or the SVR. But ultimately, you know, sowing that dissension, pushing that forward um, is a is a really smart tactic of uh, of Western intelligence. And so I, I think there's there's parts of that at play as well. So even if we don't have those penetrations, telling Putin that we do, um, we'll distract him and drive him crazy. And again, you know, remember that that you know one of the foundations of of Putin's power is you know his hold over the security state, and so if you see you know purges within the FSB, you know SVR, or if you see kind of um, you know these spy hunts, uh, you know ultimately that is a it's, it's an advantage of of the United States, the West, Ukraine altogether. Yeah,
0: I mean the same thing applies to the the rumors about Putin's health or lack thereof. Right, yeah. I mean. Uh, I did that story, um, you know, does he have cancer? Could it be blood cancer? Because an oligarch was caught on tape saying he's got blood cancer. Nothing definitive, of course, or, or, you know, even all that, but what it does show is that there are people inside the government or inside the elites who, for whatever reason, if it's true, then fine, it's true, he's dying. If it's not true, are they just trafficking in bullshit because that's what they've heard? Or are they planting
1: this right. because they want people to think he's a dying animal, that he's vulnerable, he's weak. Well, yeah, you're hundred. You know, there was a, when it was in the Washington Post yesterday that there was an article on uh, Patricev. Yes. I mean, yeah, yeah. And so I I you know so I read that article and we read it with fascination right. because it really is an interesting dynamic between the two kind of former KGB guys. But ultimately that article will annoy Putin. Yeah. And so you know, so there's some brilliant IO in there too. Now I'm not saying that the po- it was the post. I think I'm not saying they did it on purpose. But but if I was sitting back at Langley, I would say we have to promulgate that everywhere uh, uh, throughout you know the senior circles in uh, in Moscow because that will drive Putin nuts. Um, because if there ever was to be a threat to his power, it's coming from one of those guys. Right. Uh, and so so you know it's a uh, you know this this goes. I mean. One, one of the fascinating things about looking at, at at Russia and kind of these kind of dynamics, and I'm not a Russia ag- expert. You know, I, I worked Russia the last several years of my career, but I'm certainly not like Cipher or some others. But ultimately, we're we're going back to kind of you know old Byzantine you know palace intrigue and and, and politics. You know, this is this is a, a a classic dictator who you know sits on perhaps a shaky throne, and and so there are ways to mess. You know, mess with him. And, and certainly, you know, I, I read that article. And then again, when you talk about the, the loyalty of the security services, um, there's a lot in terms of information operations we can do to kind of just stir the pot. And I'll just tell you, and, you know, perhaps this, you know, this that, this kind of stuff as an old intelligence practitioner is great fun. Yeah. <laughs> because we know, you know, we're, we're going to mess with the Russians. And frankly, just like they did to us in 2016 and onwards. You know, it's it's fair. All's fair. And uh, well,
0: so now I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that, because um, the other thing I saw, I've been busy and I claim moral superiority for not even knowing Twitter was offline for 30 minutes today because I was busy taking 30
1: minutes. Yeah, terrible.
0: Yeah. No. And I I had no idea it was it was blissful ignorance on my part. But (laughs) one thing I did manage to catch yesterday or the day before, you know, John Bolton on CNN saying, um, you know, what Trump was doing wasn't a coup. I know from coups because I tried to plot them abroad. Right. And, you know. And you could hear the record screeching off the needle kind of thing. And so now this has generated a feverish debate on social media, more heat than light, as always. And I saw our you know our friend John Cypher saying, look, you know, this guy wasn't plotting any fucking coups. Like, you know, this is not, this is all just overcooked in his imagination. And now you see the far left, which believes that the United States is responsible for any act of malfeasance or any kind of you know collapse of regime abroad saying oh no this is copper bottom proof john bolton probably in venezuela or whatever in your professional experience and judgment and wisdom i mean we were talking about how the lawyers descend and and impede the ic from doing even that which would protect american lives much less you know um destabilize governments abroad is john bolton capable of a of Concocting or or being the architect of a coup d'état in any country.
1: So uh, uh, there, I have so much to say on this. I'm glad you brought it up because for for cipher. I mean, I, I just sent him a text before and I said, "Oh, for God's sake, you got to stop doing these things to yourself." Because he, there's actually a front. He's, he's a lead article in Newsweek st- uh, story that came out yesterday on this issue. I mean, Newsweek is, I think, oh, no, on yeah. But th- but this whole thing is is nuts. In some sense. John Bolton, I think, was, you know, could be seen as kind of trolling the world on this, uh-huh. because when he said this, things exploded. You know, I, my, you know, and I, I kind of defended, I, I, first of all, I, I, in my tweets, I defended John uh, Cipher for what he said. Uh, but ultimately, this whole thing is, is nonsensical, because the fact is, we actually are not in the coup business anymore. And I, I wrote something like, we haven't, in the coup business for sixty years, I have about five hundred direct messages from crazy people on my, you know, on Twitter on this. Because here's what happened. So let's let's you know, you go back to the fifties and you go back to, to Iran and, and Guatemala and everything else, and that happened a hell of a long time ago. But the fact of the matter is, in my government service, and uh, you know, so let's say over the last thirty years, but even more, you know, if we wanted to conduct a coup, and I can't believe I'm even saying this, um, you know, this this necessitates a presidential finding and a presidential finding you know, would then authorize the agency to conduct covert action. And what happens with that is that that actually that piece of covert action or that if it was an idea to overthrow a country, it would then go to a deputies committee where elements of all over the United States government have a say on this. Um, Then it gets briefed to the gang of eight, um, which are the leaders on on the Hill, the House and Senate. And when I say this to you, Michael, is because nothing stays secret in Washington. So we do not do coups anymore. That's nonsensical. And so, you know, and as people start saying what's happened recently in Bolivia and then again, this whole crazy thing in Venezuela and some of these former U.S. military folks, I think they were they were caught there. But look, you know, Bolton had a little little kind of flip remark. I think he loves doing this and it's gone completely out of control. And I think Cypher's and what you just said, too, is that now the left is grabbing onto this and it's it's all kind of ultimately ridiculous. And and remember, Bolton was actually commenting on whether whether Trump was involved in a coup attempt. Right. This always just a comment on US elections. But, you know, I think that um, just, you know, from the nuts and bolts of the American national security bureaucracy, you know, there's so much that goes into things, which, 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 which is covert action, which involve, you know, multiple elements of the US government. And when we're talking about things like, especially like regime change and coups, the fact of the matter is, these are actually more overt right now, you know, US policy will be to say overtly, we want to remove, you know, you know, X, Y, Z from power, um, yeah, and you commit one hundred
0: fifty thousand
1: soldiers in a full-scale operation right. of a country to do it.
0: It's not exactly, a, yeah. you know, clandestine coup. So, of so. but I mean, a, what what it is like people, people yeah. like to forget, like the Church Committee ever happened, and that the, the CIA never had a kind of, you know, vivisection in public, right, about its activities from the the fifties and and I guess even the sixties and stuff.
1: Look, look, and and the other thing is, you know, national, you know, so so you know the. I guess some people could say, you know, was Bolton as national security advisor, you know, running unauthorized coup attempts without right. the US intelligence community or DOD in Latin America? Well, I, I for God's sakes, I, I don't even, I can't even comment on that. But, but, you know, I think that enough has been looked into that kind of these, these, kind of these crazy affairs that happen in Venezuela and other places that it's, this is discredited. But I think you're right. It's the interesting thing is the left has gone bananas over this. Yeah, uh, over this tweet. And so I think I I think I mean, look, I, I met John Bolton before. Um, I think he's very smart, obviously controversial figure. I think he's sitting back right now laughing, he's laughing at the absolute chaos that he has caused over this over this tweet. And he's a super smart guy. And I think that that ultimately this might have been one of the great trolling, <laughs> you know, uh, instances uh, we've seen. Well, you know, this happens. This happens. Yeah, yeah, this
0: happens a lot. I mean, the, the other the other story, um, you know, the CIA was planning to assassinate Julian Assange. Oh, yeah. That's in my raw daylight yes. in London, in in, yep. in in a country that the United States has by far the most remote yes. like um, you know, diplomatic and intelligent right. ties to, and that they were going to have like a born Identity style shootout with Russian operatives that were trying to exfiltrate Assange from that. I mean, you know, I, I read this, I'm like, this is a great Hollywood script, but everybody I've ever talked to yeah. fuck the IC you know, they would joke like, we wish we could do shit like this. It's just not, you know, the, right. the handcuffs are on. I mean, you, you talk about the lawyers, you talk about the government oversight, the bureaucracy uh, and the risk aversion, which I mean, coming back to the earlier part of, of the show with respect to security assistance in Ukraine. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always in the belief like if, when things go sideways uh, or things go get violent and, and, and really turbulent anywhere in the world. It's the result more if the Americans have been involved in any fashion of incompetence and half measures rather than some con- kind of malevolent conspiracy, right? It's just not, you know, people like to think, and this kind of touches upon some of the other nuttiness that we've been dealing with in the last eight years, the so-called deep state in control that, that America is run by this kind of military intelligence junta behind the scenes, yada, yada, yada. I mean, like what kind of a deep state allows Donald Trump to whip up a, seditious mob to hang the vice president and storm. The One, it, it run out
1: of the Vienna Inn where I've taken you. you know <laughs> exactly, that exactly exactly the headquarters of the Vienna Inn. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's it, you, so no look, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But but so you on. mentioned that story, which, which again, I I you know I find that story that the whole kind of US is going to assassinate a sign story utterly ridiculous. Uh, you know, not only was I there at that time, and I'll just say that, but the idea that we, you know, we can't we can't go to the bathroom uh in the UK without asking the Brits for permission. Um, so this is—it's just—it's absolutely fanciful nonsense. Yeah. Um, now, does that mean that that some U.S. politicians, or or you know, perhaps even uh, the the director of the agency at the time, like Pompeo, sitting up on the seventh floor late at night, you know, having a—he he doesn't drink, so he hasn't wasn't having a bourbon, having his diet coke—said said to one of his close aides, "God damn it, I wish we could kill that motherfucker." He probably said that because right. guess what—we all feel that way. Right. <laughs> but the idea but the idea that this actually had any legs or was even close to being something um, that would come to fruition is utter nonsense. Uh, you know again, all I can do and others can do is as former officials who you know we are constrained by our secrecy agreement right. um, is just kind of put things in perspective that this is this is kind of crazy you know ma- stuff you know made for TV made for movies, uh, theater and, and again, if you know the intelligence business and you know about a relationship with with the British government, this is, this is just kind of nonsensical stuff. And so, you know, you, you, but, but, but you know what? The, the people are going to read it. People are going to believe it. And particular people on the left are going to embrace that. And so all I hear all the time, like I, look, Michael, I, you know, I, I, go talk, I go to talk to colleges all over the country because I, I love talking about the intelligence business, but I also want to get people excited about uh, joining uh, the national security sector and particularly the agency. Uh, and people ask me all the time, well, <laughs> weren't you all trying to kill Julian Assange? And I'm just like, oh, what a single story has done. Yeah. Okay. I mean, in, in, in one
0: of the, the debates I remember having with people who were you know in the IC or just left, and this is going back now several years, is is WikiLeaks, is Assange uh, a proper asset of Russian intelligence? Or are they just so, or, right. let's be, be clear, I mean, Assange himself, so megalomaniacal and narcissistic that he doesn't care who he's getting assistance from as long as it perpetuates his agenda, which is now a deeply anti-American and weirdly alt-right one. So, I mean, you you enter into these sort of areas of gray. I mean, look, this story did not sway a British judge. uh, And it looks like Assange is set to be extradited. One of the things I'm fascinated to see, assuming that this is all going to be ventilated in public and through the media, is what what turns up in that court docket? You know, what this guy has been doing on the sly or through secure communications, which now presumably belong to the American government all the live long day. You saw just today that the, uh, the computer engineer working for the agency who leaked the so-called Vault 9 stuff okay. has been found guilty. Um, you know, my, my hypothesis, and I, again, I don't have evidence for this, but just based on the optics of it and the kind of person, Assange, and, and the kind of organization that WikiLeaks is, is a lot's going to come out that's going to be very embarrassing to a great many people, including those who have been carrying water for this guy and for this, this group for a long, long time.
1: I, I, would, I would tend to agree. I, I don't know, but I would, I would certainly, you know, uh, uh, tend to agree And you know, there are, there are, you know, many in the national security field who probably have a very good understanding on the extent of which um, Assange cooperated with the Russians. Um, again, maybe that comes out, maybe it doesn't. Ultimately, you know, the, the idea of when Mike Pompeo came out and, and said we have to treat WikiLeaks as a hostile intelligence organization, you know, the, I think some people take that as, well, that's going to trigger some kind of U.S. covert action. That's not true. What that does is that triggers the, the concept that the United States can use our offensive counterintelligence authorities to collect on them. Right. That's it. Um, so again, that doesn't mean killing anybody. And also, that doesn't I mean, mean you snatching know, them on the like, street. But it's a really big difference. And the lawyers and everybody knows this. That's why that, that article just and, made and no look, sense. And Pompeo is
0: clearly a divisive and controversial figure. Um, but, you know, I, I always was of the assumption that when the CIA director comes out and says something like that, he ain't freelancing. He's not winging, right? Not at that, all. that is That's a right. statement that has yeah. been edited and vetted and is purposefully said out loud for public. consumption.
1: Through an interagency process and through tons of lawyers, um, hundred percent. And again, the idea that we can do anything kind of kinetic or any kind of, you know, off, you know, snatch and grab operation is just is just utterly ludicrous um you know it gets but it's you know there's uh, you know it is what it is i think i think you're right that's going to be a fascinating If he gets extradited it'll be a fascinating fascinating trial and you know and you know i mean you, you and i have talked about it all the time it's a, it's a very weird position for myself and some of my colleagues to be in the former intel world where you know we were super critical of, of the trump administration uh and so you know so then all of a sudden we get embraced by the left well don't right. get so comfortable with us right you know uh, you know i mean i spent my whole career in counterterrorism operations. There's a lot that I did that I think a lot of people on the left wouldn't be so uh, comfortable with. Right. And so what you're going to see, though, is how, you know, how is the left going to react to this? Is this going to be, you know, a, a, an affront on kind of you know, journalism? And, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating um, to see, uh, you know, in, in this trial on, on how, uh, you know, how, how people uh, in the U.S. media Kind of kind of you know, kind of think about, well, this. And, but, you know, I
0: look, I mean, I've, I've done shows on this. I had Marcy Wheeler on who right. is of the left, but also very clear eyed and, and critical of right. and WikiLeaks. I had Mark Zaid, who's like one of the foremost uh, defense counsels for whistleblowers from the IC right. and First Amendment lawyer. And, you know, people see my lawyer forget, and your lawyer on, on <laughs> you know, going after the government on Havana syndrome. I mean, people seem to forget that the first indictment leveled against Assange was for computer hacking into That's a right. DOD computer system. That's oh, a, he's a journalist. Excuse me, right. I don't care you don't that, do that you don't yeah. do that. If I did that, I would lose my job first. The FBI right. would show up to my house and put me in handcuffs. I mean, yeah. and yet, you know, you have a host of NGOs, civil liberty organizations saying this is an assault on, on a free press. Right. Excuse me, but the Espionage Act does not get invoked against journalists on a regular basis. Remember the, all, the, all the leaks in the Obama administration when Obama's DOJ was like clamping down? You still weren't having people indicted under the Espionage Act. This is kind of in terra incognita here, at least according to Mark Zaid, who knows more about these things than I do. And again, I, I, my working hypothesis, and I'm happy to be proved wrong, what the U.S. government has on this man and this organization far exceeds that which has been disclosed publicly.
1: Oh, I, I, I would tend to agree. So and
0: t- maybe uh, some of it gets out there in court And I mean, you know, one of the difficulties, and, and believe me, I, I'm wrestling this, with this on a daily basis. You're writing a book on intelligence. Intelligence is not something that can be reported on with a great deal of precision in real time. It takes years or decades to get at the truth. I mean, look at all the Soviet agents running around the United States in the 1930s and 40s, who we had the era of McCarthyism, which, which just tarnish the argument that there was a deep penetration of the u.s government and but there were but there were and yeah. we know it because we had venona and venona yeah. was de- was declassified and we could read the talk about sigin we also know it because the mctrokin archive was smuggled out of russia actually through talon i just did the walk that vasily mctrokin did from the railway station Oh wow, I didn't know St. that. Is, yeah there's a whole like little trail uh, i mean not publicly listed but you can figure it out right. anyway. I mean, you know, a tranche of evidence and sort of um, damning documentation from the Russian side about this stuff. And to this day, you're going to find some graying mains either on the left or for whatever their political purpose. I guess Assange stands now, come from the far right and the far left. Right, right. He does he have a lot not. of
1: champions in the far right too, right? Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Simply deny that, that anything has taken place. Anyway, uh, this has run long, but I knew it would. And I'm glad that it did because it's awesome. always fun. Um, I mean, like I say, my my podcast is essentially conversations I have with my friends and my colleagues and my sort of confidants for public consumption, maybe with a little less uh, alcohol and a little less good <laughs> language. Right. Anyway, Mark Polymeropoulos, great to have you back and you'll be back again, I am sure. Um, and oh, um, flag your book again. Oh, I, sure. Uh, it's yeah, first of all, ahead. thanks
1: Michael for having me on. So my book is uh, Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA, it's on Amazon. I'm still doing you know, kind of this, this never-ending book tour. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know it's a yeah. it's a never-ending process um and uh and so uh it, it's a, it's a book i talk you know it, it has it, it is a ton of operational stories um but mostly it's it's how i led in uh, uh you know in with the times of gray you know when there was a lack of situational awareness and it's just it's you know it's a it's it's kind of just building blocks um for either you know elite performers teams and so it's a it, it's a it's a lot of fun i love talking about it with folks i've been focusing this last couple, you know, weeks and months really on, uh, on the sports world. I've been going to talk to a lot of baseball, the college and, uh, uh, baseball teams, um, just because again, the lessons learned, um, uh, you know, there, there are parallels. We can do a whole other show on this parallels between, um, the espionage business and, uh, and baseball. And so, and you—you you, you should meet bonus. my dad.
0: Since I'm like 10 years old, my dad's been telling me all you need to learn about life, son, you can get from well, the godfather yeah. and from baseball. So, baseball, perfect. <laughs> with, with Russia, perfect. With the godfather, and with everything else, I guess baseball.
1: <laughs> anyway,
0: great to see <laughs> you, Thanks, man. Michael. Um, and yeah, come back soon. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Office. This is Michael Weiss. We will see you next week.